The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Barcelona Euro exit has eerie parallels of other big story. Xavi leadership, poor excuse for a team, and a big night that for them just didn't happen. As the Catalans exit the group faster than staffers from the wine and cheese WhatsApp, we survey the midweek winners and losers of Match Day 6 and then look ahead to a Premier League weekend rich in drama. Steven Gerrard versus Liverpool may include traces of other Villa personnel and the Premier League's first all-insect set to that and much, much more coming up in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. All right then, calendar on the wall. Listener says for us, Thursday the 9th of December, I can only guess where in the future you might lie. But right now I'm here with Duncan Alexander, Michael Cox and Tom Williams, very much present. How are you all? Very good, thanks James. A little bit shy this morning, a little bit tentative. Very well. Well, I just, I, I didn't know whether we were going to do a joint sort of collective unison answer. Hiya! All right. <laughs> like that. For example... All right, yeah. Coxie's having none of this. He's already, he's already no, folded his arms it. and sat back in the chair. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. Yeah, we're heading into December, busiest of months. Storm clouds are gathering a little bit. Had some fixtures cancelled. Seen some empty stadiums. Really, mm. really sad Didn't to like see that. that, no? No. Mm. Particularly as in the Champions League, they don't do the fake crowd noise. And I know that split opinion back in the day. But I was a I was a big advocate of the of the fake crowd noise. Just do you not a, do your own, Duncan? No, no. Okay. But I like the kind of vague realism that it added to the to the games. Even especially when they went a bit early on a shot that hit the side netting or something. It was right. you know it was nice. <laughs> do you remember when the fans first when the fans first came back in? I think it was BT left. Maybe it was like a technical thing, but they left fake crowd noise as a sound option. So if you'd got so attached to it and you weren't yet ready to to let go, you could still listen, which I thought was a, a curious one. Tom, is that true? Yeah, well, it, when they yeah, first let in, it like was... maybe a couple of matches. It was the Tier 2 era, wasn't it, when some clubs could have, was it, 2,000 yeah, like 2,000, right. So right. it's like, do you want 2,000 real people or 20,000 fake people? I don't know. That's what it's it It's like was. Twitter followers yeah. in a lot of ways, isn't it? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right then. Well, you know what? Uh, final round of group stage matches this midweek in the Champions League, and by and large, it was pretty exciting. <laughs> Liverpool, Bayern, and Ajax all making it six wins out of six. Bayern beating Barcelona, who thus exit at the group stage of the Champions League for the first time since the year. 2000. Benfica taking second spot in that group. Atletico Madrid going through in Liverpool's group ahead of Porto and Milan. Chelsea losing top spot in theirs in a 3-3 draw in St Petersburg, but they're of course already through to the last 16. Man United failing to beat Young Boys again, but also already qualified and they go through in top spot. Atalanta against Villarreal now due to be played Thursday afternoon after a blizzard in Bergamo Wednesday night. The draw for the knockout stage is uh, Monday morning-ish, lunchtime, in Neon. Could be quite interesting. In the group winner's pot, thus, you've got Ajax, Bayern, Juventus, Liverpool, Lille, French champions, Man City, Man United and Real Madrid. In the other pot, some big names. Atletico Madrid, Chelsea, PSG, plus Benfica, Inter, Salzburg, Sporting and either Atalanta or Villarreal. It's going to be quite a draw. 
and it features four non-top five league clubs. You've got Benfica, Sporting, Salzburg or Salzburg and Ajax. Caramba. Yeah, that is quite exciting. It's particularly unusual to have an Austrian side in there. It's the first time there's been an Austrian side uh, since Sturm Graz in 2001, which, uh, or 2000, 2001, which I believe is Duncan's favourite all-time Champions League group. So this was this was the group, it was Group D in yeah. 2000, where Sturm Graz and Galatasaray progressed. They both had a goal difference of minus three. Yeah. Rangers and Monaco went out with a goal difference of plus three which just looks really weird. Anyway, he wrote about it in his book, which I really enjoyed. He clearly doesn't remember. No, I do remember that. Book. I was trying I mean, to... I was, I, was, I was maybe going to plug it for Christmas, but you don't seem that, wow. that keen on What it. I was trying to do was think, is it my favourite Champions League group or is it the one I remembered last night, which was Villarreal getting through in 05, 06, winning the group, having played six and scored three goals and let in one. So obviously... <laughs> by, Barcelona scored two goals and went out, but obviously theoretically could have gone through with three goals. So yeah, there there are some some good groups. Yeah, quite reassuring as well that these teams from, shall we say, Europe's smaller nations are still making their presence felt in the Champions League, given that we are speeding towards uh, a very significant reform of the competition, which will make it even harder for those teams to uh, you know have a go. Uh, and when the Andrea Agnellis of this of this world are very openly uh, talking down the right of smaller clubs to uh, you know to, to get some of the Champions League party. I think it's quite refreshing that we've got a bit of diversity in the last sixteen. Love a bit of diversity in the last sixteen. Barcelona going out—that's the price you pay for it, though, Tom. That was the big story midweek, beaten three 0 by Bayern, as you mentioned, Duncan. Only two goals scored by the Catalans in the entire group stage, which is as many as Martin Keown and John Beresford. Mm, not in put other group stages, mm. yeah. So not not a great attacking performance from them, nope. but yeah, lot, lots to work on. I would suggest absolutely defeated by a Bayern side that was already qualified and was in front of an empty stadium as well. The worst bit, arguably, was at the final whistle or after the final whistle, when top television show El Chiringuito managed to capture pictures of Ricky Butch heading to the team bus, carrying an iPad with live pictures playing on it. Stop. Zoom in, says host Lobo Carrasco, like Deckard in Blade Runner. Is that Money Heist? He's another guest. He can't watch Money Heist. Not now. This is the moment, confirms another guest, that shows there's no such thing as DNA. Wow. It's not the biggest scandal involving a putsch in Munich, of course, that there's ever been, but, but still... They were pretty upset. I mean, I would suggest Barcelona's transfer policy of the last decade is more of a money heist than uh, <laughs> than that. But but um, it is a strange thing, isn't it, about football that fans kind of demand penitence um, immediately after games, and any player seemed to be laughing. Or was it who was the player? Harry Maguire went out the other week, didn't he? After United lost at Watford and was seen out on Instagram uh, that night, and it was a disgrace. But. You know, everyone has bad days at work. You don't go home and just stare at the wall. Well, some people might, I suppose. But yeah, I mean, what what was he supposed to do? Put a film on. Seems fine. It is a remarkable show, that, isn't it? I wonder whether you, you get the sense that, I mean, surely the second the, the camera stops rolling, they must mm. all just burst out in hysterical laughter. Because it's I such so. a ridiculously like po-faced uh, way of looking at football. I, it's Yeah, the mind boggles. It certainly does. 
So far, a bit of a mixed week for Spanish sides. We've yet to see the uh, Thursday night Europa League action. Sevilla are also going out of their group. But Atletico Madrid somehow staying in. Michael, can you offer any explanation about A, how Atletico, with one of the best squads in their history, play such bad football, and B, how they're, despite that, in the last 16? No, it's it's very strange. I must say they, they seem quite indicative of the Champions League this year in that I think there's maybe four or five good teams, possibly just the English sides and Bayern. And everyone else you expect to be quite good have just been massively underwhelming. And yeah, Atleti would be right up there. I mean, the game against Porto, it just seemed to be absolute vintage Simeone tactics. Just so much kind of bad sportsmanship. And I mean, sometimes when they're up against... You know, over the last decade, when they've been up against better sides, they've often used those kind of tactics and it's worked for them because it's made a scrappy game and that suits Mm. them. But they're, I mean, they're, they're... they're meant to be quite a good side. You know, they're the champions. They're playing against, I guess, a lesser team. It feels like they don't really need to resort to that kind of thing. It was but, tremendously um, entertaining, though. It, it was, it was um, yeah, I can't. I mean, it was full-on scraps, you know, over mm. a period of about 10 minutes, just kind of rumbling on, kept re- rekindling itself. Um, you mentioned Ajax, though, is one of the teams that's impressed. And uh, six wins out of six, first time that a Dutch side's ever done that. Sebastian Allaire continuing. He's extraordinary. A rebirth in Europe. Fastest player to reach 10 goals in the competition. First player to score in his first six Champions League games ever. Reaching those 10 goals quicker than Erling Haaland, to put that in perspective. Remarkable. Nobody's going to want to face Ajax in the last 16. He's got as many Champions League goals this season as he did in a season and a half with West Ham. Um, and it's going to be funny, isn't it? If West Ham, are, they are good, obviously, but if, if they'd have kept Hallett, they could have won the title. And uh, it's Moyes' greatest mistake. Just as he thought he was out, they pulled him back in. It's a kind of Tony Pulis, Serge Nabry at West Brom paradigm for you, is it, Duncan? Well, it's just, I can imagine a situation where, you know, Haya gets Ajax through to the semis or something and West Ham miss out on the Champions League by a drawing nil-nil or something late on in the season. And it's just it might raise its head as a bit of a, oh, look, we sold one of the best players in the Champions League this season for uh, last who's, year. Whose fault was that? Was it that he didn't do any of this at West Ham? Was it Was it him? Was it them? What? Well, he started very well. I remember his first few games. He looked, he looked really good. He could link play. He was an aerial threat. I don't know whether it was a confidence thing or whatever, but to be fair, there's been a few strikers at West Ham over the years, over the last decade or so, who have had similar problems and it's funny that the one striker who has worked out well for them was brought in as a kind of right back or right wing back and has almost reluctantly become a, an out and out centre forward so yeah he certainly wasn't alone he's, his, his time at West Ham is probably being made to look worse by the fact they've been so good since he left but yeah he, he did start well I'm not sure what happened I think one of the problems that West Ham had with, with Allaire was that they used him as a, a target man um, and that he was quite isolated. When you look at his physique, you, you'd think that that's the sort of football he's suited to. But at Eintracht Frankfurt, where he had been prior to West Ham, he played in this really fluid front three with players sort of interchanging positions. And sometimes he'd be the number 10 behind the two strikers. Sometimes he'd be one of the strikers. And he does have that in his game. And you look at the way that Ajax play. I mean, obviously Ajax are a super attacking team, but the players he's got around him, you know, David Neres, Anthony, Steven Bergwijs, like that that's that's much closer to the the, the kind of setup he had at, at Frankfurt when he played some of his best football whereas my recollection of his time at West Ham was a lot of him just sort of standing there mm. watching balls being booted up towards him and not necessarily knowing what to do with him 
It's a classic English thing, isn't it? It's the same with Joe Linton at Newcastle. You, they just judge players on size and say, same with Lukaku as well, to an extent. Same with Abu Dhabi. Do you remember people said he was the new Patrick Vieira just because he was about the same height as him? But he played in a completely different way. So we need to move beyond size issues. Absolutely. Lille aren't big, but they performed well, didn't they, Tom? French champions in the last 16. Just extraordinary. Yeah, real achievement uh, for Lille, who have uh, made a really underwhelming fist of their league and title defence. They're currently mid-table. I mean, they're, they're miles off the pace. And it's often felt in their domestic games that they've lost the sort of compactness and, and the rigour and the kind of fighting spirit that were their hallmarks last season when they memorably pipped PSG to the, to the league and title. But we've seen some of that from them in Europe. I mean, they'd a re- they made a really poor start to what was quite a homogenous group. I mean, Lille... Uh, Red Bull Salzburg, Sevilla, Wolfsburg, no real standout team there. So you felt they they should stand a chance of going through. Didn't win any of their first three matches um, and didn't really sort of look at it, but then won the last three. Um, And we've seen some of that, some of that Lille fighting spirit from last season. Um, And I think Jonathan David's form has been crucial. Mm. Canadian striker in his second season at Lille has made a really, really uh, impressive start to the season. Top scorer in Ligue 1. He scored in each of those three wins um, in their their fourth, fifth and sixth group games. Will almost certainly leave at the end of the summer for a huge amount of money. And is another example of Lille very skillfully spending a decent amount of money on a young up-and-coming player and turning him into a bit of a superstar in the same way they did with you know Victor Osimhen, Nicola Pepe, albeit... Pepe hasn't exactly lived up to his billing at Arsenal, but it is a tried and tested Lille formula. He's also the best Champions League player named after a Bell and Sebastian song, as far as I can tell. What song is that, Duncan? Jonathan David. They made a song called Jonathan David? (laughs) Yeah. Remarkable. What came first? Well, probably Jonathan David, actually. But, you know, his notoriety perhaps second. Anybody got anything they particularly enjoyed uh, other than those things about Tuesday and Wednesday's action? Just wanted to mention Marco Royce's second goal in mm. Borussia Dortmund's 5-0 win over Besiktas, which is one of the most dainty little goals you've ever seen. He's on sort of like the left-hand edge of the penalty area, kind of inside left channel. He plays a 1-2 with um, Dahoud. And then he uses his, the outside of his right foot three times. The first time he uses it, he nutmegs someone. The second time he uses it, he does what the French call a, a big bridge. So knocks it around one side and then runs it around the other. Then he takes another touch with the outside of his right, right foot to sort of settle himself. And then does this like deliberately very gentle, trundly finish into the bottom left corner. Royce rolls it in, I think, is the uh, Royce rolls it in. That's, yeah. the, that's what it, I'm The nutmeg for. is a little bridge, isn't it? So he did a little bridge followed by a big bridge. It sounds even better in French. Yeah, mm. little bridge, big bridge, little <laughs> touch. Royce rolls it in. Right. Um, it didn't do them much good. They still went out. Uh, of, well, they were still out already of, uh, of the Champions League, but they'll be in that Europa League if they get through the playoff. Michael? I mean, on the subject of Dortmund, I know this probably shouldn't come as a surprise because he's a very good player, but I was amazed to see Erling Haaland has 23 goals in 19 Champions League games. I mean, we've we've become a little bit kind of accustomed to players scoring a goal a game because of Ronaldo and Messi and Lewandowski, but none of them were doing that at the age of 21 or anywhere near it. And he's, 
okay, Dortmund the good side, but it's not like he's been playing for Bayern or Real mm. Madrid. I mean, some of those games came for uh, Salzburg, the rest for Dortmund. That's just a really, really incredible goal-scoring return for a 21-year-old. Overall, he's got 74 goals in 72 games for Dortmund. So, yeah, like you say, pretty, pretty mad. Although he's only got as many Champions League goals this season as Timo Werner on the flip side. Timo so. Werner was on fire Wednesday night in St. Petersburg in a game which didn't turn out the way Chelsea had hoped. A 3-3 draw against Zenit, which uh, sees Juventus actually take the top spot in the group. But by and large, it was a decent finish for the Premier League sides. Liverpool looking awesome. Man City uh, actually beaten by Leipzig, so actually not that decent now that I come to think of it. But they'd already done their their work in the previous rounds. I mean, match day six is a strange one, isn't it? Because often you get these sort of dead rubbers. And I think that's why it is, re- until this season, relatively rare for teams to get 18 points out of 18, just because if you've got 15 after five games, then bring in the youngsters in the reserve. So mm. that Liverpool game, you know, anyone that can remember... Champions League games from the 90s when English teams would would go and play teams like Milan and 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 other big teams from Italy and Spain and it was you could almost see the trepidation before they they even started the game just terrified and and to see like essentially Liverpool's sort of second string with the with Salah and Mane just you know it was so easy for them really yeah it was it shows the difference in how much the the Premier League has grown and you know it really is the the strongest league by by miles now Mm, a lot of love for Nat Phillips and his uh, incredibly cool Cruyff turn, except was it in the Liverpool box in that game at the San Siro Tom? Well, it wasn't technically a Cruyff turn in that he used his studs to sort of drag the ball away from the onrushing players. But I mean, yeah, an absolutely beautiful moment of skill. The fact that one of the players charging in was was big, big Zlatan probably made it even more enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. although is that a bit, a little bit like being in the garbage compactor in Star Wars? <laughs> In terms of, you know, oncoming <laughs> pace. In what? Well, yeah, I suppose in terms of oncoming pace, world? yes. But I imagine, like, for, for a top-level footballer, doing something that winds up Zatan Ibrahimovic must be quite satisfying. I always remember him right. getting nutmegged outrageously by a guy called Aurelian Shedju, who played for... Uh, was he playing for Lille at the time? And I remember thinking, that must feel... That must feel pretty sweet. Excellent. We should probably mention Real Madrid, who beat Inter... In fine fashion, 2-0 on Tuesday. Ancelotti has now overseen a winning streak of eight games or more on three separate occasions at the Real Madrid, uh, on the Real Madrid bench. It's now nine games in a row that they've won Real Madrid and streaking well clear in La Liga in the process. Another of the sides that teams will be keen to avoid in the draw, which, as I say, is coming up on Monday. Uh, Wednesday night, meanwhile, Michael, you went along to a Women's Champions League game. Chelsea-Juventus at Kingsmeadow. No goals but a pitch invader. Handily, if you were doing a match report in verse, it was Sam Kerr who tackled him. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's very good. Um, yeah, it was quite a funny game because Juventus is now managed by former Arsenal manager Joe Montemuro, who when he was at Arsenal was talking about how much he loves tiki-taka and possession football. And then he takes charge of an Italian side and they produce the most defensive display I think I've ever seen. I think they blocked about... 10 goal-bound shots. And the crowning moment was in stoppage time when Juventus's captain, big, tall uh, centre-back, just hoofed the ball as far out of the ground as she could. And they took quite a while to get a ball back. But yeah, the, the pitching... I mean, it was quite a weird sight. I, I don't know why, but there's something... I've never seen a pitch invader at a 
women's game before. And there's something quite weird about it being a, a male pitch invader. Mm. I, I don't know why that felt quite weird. Mm. And the security were very slow to react. And he was trying to take a selfie with, I think, Magdalena uh, Eriksson, Chelsea captain. And as he was walking off, checking over his shoulder that the security weren't coming near him, Sam Kerr absolutely poleaxed him with a... I guess a shoulder barge. It was almost like an Aussie rules. I mean, she is Australian. It almost felt like an Aussie rules move. But mm. it was it was fantastic. And um, you know, with no Did goals, the crowd it was, roar? yeah, it was a it was a nil nil where Chelsea were threatening to score the whole game, and there was just a kind of tension like the crowd were desperate to go wild at something, and uh, and that was that. Brilliant. All right. Uh, well, of course, more women's Champions League coming up on Thursday night with that big Arsenal Barcelona game amongst. Other things. Uh, next up, anyway, and speaking of round of 16, uh, that's what's coming up this weekend in the Premier League, so let's get on to that. It's the Paddy Power Football Supporters Support Line. We're talking to Burnley fan Graham. What's up, Graham? Oh, well, it's Christmas, Paddy. Uh, not a Grinch, are you, Graham? Oh, I love all the midweek fixtures, the quick turnaround between games. So why so glum? Well, it's the work Christmas party, the five-a-side drinks, schoolmates, dinner. Makes it very hard to watch all the football. The Premier League is non-stop this December, so make the most of it with Paddy Power's Bet Builder offer. Get money back as a free bet if one leg of your Bet Builder lets you down. Paddy Power. Pre-match online Bet Builder bets only. Min odds one to five per leg. Min four plus legs. Max free bet ten pounds per day. Excludes enhanced match odds. Season season supply. Eighteen plus. Be gamble aware. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. This Saturday, as the Premier League returns, football gets a massive hit of pure high-grade narrative as one of Liverpool's most favourite sons returns to Merseyside in rival colours, or actually a suit, but still. Steven Gerrard, Liverpool legend turned managerial prodigy, in town and looking to take down his old side. Woo! A.K.A. Liverpool Aston Villa Saturday at 3 o'clock. Michael, how surprised are you at the immediate impact of Steven Gerrard manager. I've been very impressed. I mean, I think when you look at the results, it's a bit of an exaggeration. I mean, six defeats followed by this very good start. It hasn't been that transformative, but they've been so much better without the ball. I mean, towards the end under Dean Smith, they were so open, particularly between the lines. I think Gerrard seems to focus very heavily on the midfield three in particular, just staying in position and protecting the centre-backs. And it's really been the full-backs that have been given a lot of licence to go forward. And in a way, that's quite similar to the way Liverpool play. I mean, the, you know, it's a little bit different now because I think Henderson's developed his game a little bit and Thiago is, is a very technical player. But in general, under Klopp, the midfield three have been quite workmanlike and it's been the full-backs who have pushed forward to join the front three and been so prolific in terms of assisting. So I don't know whether that's deliberate or not, but there's certainly a, a similarity in the way that the teams play. Um, so yeah, it should be quite an interesting uh, tactical battle, although I'm sure really the, the focus would just be on the reception won't it? and, and <laughs> any discernible sign of emotion from Gerard. Which I'm quite looking forward to, I can't lie. Mm. 
Well, what we want, or I imagine the narrative gods want, is a sort of 4-3 Liverpool win end-to-end, and then Gerard gives a really magnanimous interview at the end with, you know, shame not to win, but, you know, this is what you get when you come to Anfield, etc., etc. So, um, but it is, we talked about this the other day, but it is Gerard's transformation into a manager is, is quite unusual, that he already looks and feels like a really proper manager which I think mm. you don't necessarily necessarily get with big ex-players but you know at the at the site of, of the obviously one of the most famous moments in Premier League history the slip against Chelsea you know that oh, Duncan well I just because it's worth mentioning because he did try and take it all on that day he had nine shots mm. in that game Chelsea had ten he had eight shots after the slip from an average distance of, of 27 yards. So he was trying to do everything. And I think what's interesting about him as a manager is that he isn't like that. He's very thoughtful. He's got a good coaching team around him. He see, it's almost like, as much as he was an incredible player, it almost feels like he could be an, a better manager than he was a player. Wow. So it'd be interesting to, uh, to see how that develops. Well, early days at Villa, but of course he's got a very successful stint at Rangers under his belt as well. Tom? Yeah, and I think what we've seen from him in these early games at Villa follows on from what he was doing at Rangers. You look at the way that he sets the team out. Rangers similarly played with a very compact midfield three with the fullbacks providing the width. And they, they generally play with like a sort of 4-3-2-1 four, four, Christmas tree. So with like a couple of number 10s behind a single striker. And I think that's been the one area where we've seen a bit more variety in Villa's tactics uh, in, in these early games in that he's, he's, he's played a back four each time. He's played a, a very compact midfield three each time, but then he's kind of mixed up the personnel and the shape of that front three. Um, but yeah, I mean, clearly that, I suppose, sort of, you know, viewed from south of the border, you can sometimes look down your nose a little bit at, at Scottish football. I don't know, maybe I'm just revealing my own uh, uh, deeply ingrained prejudices here. Um, but you, you can really see uh, what he, he, he took from that in terms of being at the head of a big club which faces an awful lot of media scrutiny where the tiniest little setback is, you know, is blown out of all proportion. Um, and it feels like he's sort of doing things in the right order. And, you know, Villa seems the, the sort of the, the perfect place for him right now on, on the next step in, in this journey that we know he and, and everyone else hopes will, will one day lead him to the Anfield dugout. I mean, I think Scottish football fans have probably been become accustomed to uh, being patronised by English football observers, but being patronised by a Welshman. I mean, things mm. must be particularly bad in Scotland. How are Connor's key playing this season, Tom? <laughs> but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a kinship between the Welsh and, and, the, and the Scottish because we, we all hate Not England. Anymore, though, so right? we, we're, 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 we're forgiven for observations like that. So um, what, what, what do you think of the prospects of, of Villa actually getting a result at Anfield? I, I don't think it's impossible. I mean, they... Um, they beat Liverpool last year, famously, albeit mm. in a pretty mad game and at Villa Park behind closed doors. Um, yeah, I don't think it's impossible. I, I think I think he'll probably play quite bravely there. I think the one thing Gerard won't want is to go to Anfield and produce a yeah. defensive performance and get beaten. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how he sets up the team. I think it should be quite a good, uh, yeah, good, good game. And also, I, I'm interested to see how he does conduct himself. I know this is kind of probably a bit tedious, but there'll be certain lines he says, I think, that will be geared towards the occasion. You know, he'll say, oh, you know, 
you've got to keep the crowd quiet first 15 minutes because if they get if they get going you can't hold them back or something like that there'll be certain things that will be geared towards his uh his past and maybe his future that game coming up three o'clock on saturday afternoon another big fixture we just won't be able to see duncan we definitely won't be able to see it um it's funny, isn't it? Because there's been a few times this season where obviously the TV picks are made a f- couple of months in advance mm. and narrative has shifted so fast that what looked like maybe a, a classic three o'clock game was, has become something much bigger, but it's too late to switch. I mean, for Liverpool, they only had one three o'clock game on Saturday in the whole of last season in the Premier really? League. And I think this is their fifth this season. So traditionalists are probably loving it, but mm. I think... Gerard going back to Anfield is something the, the nation deserves to see yeah. on, a, on a channel. Absolutely. But, but the main thing is him coming out and half-heartedly waving. And you'll be able to see that on Soccer Saturday, presumably before they cut the pictures, right? All right. So there's that. Anyway, Liverpool are in a three-way race at the top uh, in second place right now, a point behind Man City and one ahead of Chelsea. Saturday, we'll also see Man City hosting Wolves at lunchtime. And then also at three o'clock, and thus invisibly to... UK viewers, Chelsea hosting Leeds. Man City Wolves. Michael, did you go along to Watford last weekend to see City there? I did, yes. All right. And you wrote about a level of control you'd never witnessed before. Yeah, probably not in the Premier League. I thought the first half they were absolutely brilliant, City. Just the, the passing, the combination play, how quickly they regained the ball... It was only a 3-1 win at the end, uh, in the end, but the, the first half performance I thought was just brilliant. And I, I liked it because it felt, of all the City teams I've seen, maybe all the Guardiola teams I've seen, it felt like everything wasn't based around one or two players. You know, there was no De Bruyne. Obviously, Aguero's gone. They haven't got a replacement for him. And it just felt all the... They basically played an attacking five, effectively. Um, and it felt they were all on the same level. They were all combining very well. Bernardo Silva's probably the the technical leader, I suppose, at the moment. But I've always thought of him as a very selfless player who only this season is almost reluctantly getting himself into goal-scoring positions and scoring goals. But, yeah, the, the performance dropped after half-time, but I thought they were fantastic before uh, before the break. City taking on a Wolves side that are the second lowest scorers in the Premier League this season. Only Norwich have fewer goals. Uh, but only the top three have conceded fewer goals than Wolves. So, yeah, that'll be interesting. Amongst all games, like big games with 60 or more matches between them. This is the highest scoring game in, in football history in England. On average. Man City and Wolves. Yeah. I mean, pe- mm. people who say football didn't start in 1888 won't, won't like it, but it's true. So Chelsea are having a bit of a wobble right now, eh, Tom? They did get that Watford victory where, to be fair, a lengthy interruption appeared to do them a big favour after an excellent start from the Hornets. But that's their only win in their last four games. As I mentioned, a 3-3 draw away in St. Petersburg, or the December in St. Petersburg, notoriously difficult for, uh, you know, visitors. I'm speaking historically. Sasha knows what I'm talking about. But anyway, yeah, Chelsea having a bit of a wobble. What's going on? Yeah, and I mean, even that Watford game, they were very flaky. Uh, and Thomas Tuchel admitted afterwards that they were quite fortunate to have won. Drew at home to Manchester United prior to that with a, the... Jorginho mistake and losing uh, at West Ham last time out in slightly unfortunate circumstances with that absolute fluke of an Arthur Masuaku goal but having already looked a lot more vulnerable than we've been used to 
seeing from Chelsea since the start of the season. And then, as you say, midweek, 3-3 away to Zenit. And that very costly stoppage time equaliser they conceded that drops them into the into the unseeded uh, pot. Uh, and I, I, you know, I suspect what we're seeing is a consequence of the absence of those key midfielders. Mm. N'Golo Conte, Matteo Kovacic, I think Jorginho's only started one of the last three or the last four or something like that. You know, we've seen a bit more of Sal Niguez, Ruben Loftus-Cheek's been getting more of a run out. And it, it just shows how how vital those players are to Chelsea. And I think specifically Conte, I think, I think one of the things you forget about Conte is that he, he is only just one player, but he... He plugs so many holes and he is so vital to the importance of a team. It's the same thing with France. You know, the, the France team only works because Conte is is in it and and him being there allows, you know, Pogba to, to play uh, without having to think too much about what's happening behind him. And it just sort of ties the whole thing together. So, you know, you, you really notice when he's missing for Chelsea and when you add that to, to Kovacic being mm. out and also to Jorginho not always being there you know you're inevitably going to find yourselves with, with a with a, a softer center and i think that's one of the things that's 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 cost them of late all right no kante no kovacic no cover but similarly no calvin uh, for leeds calvin phillips who suffered a hamstring injury against brentford apparently he's set for a lengthy spell on the sidelines only one win in five for leeds yeah, and it feels really unfortunate in that Leeds are just starting to get back some of the players that they've been without for the last few weeks. So Luke Ayling and Patrick Bamford were both back uh, for the draw at Brentford last time out. Bamford obviously getting that that joyously celebrated stoppage time equaliser. So for them to, to to have lost Calvin Phillips just as those two are back in seems, seems a pity, particularly when you look at Leeds' uh, fixtures coming up. Chelsea away, Man City away, Arsenal at home, Liverpool away. I mean, three of the, the most difficult games they'll face all season. Uh, and Arsenal. And, yeah. uh, Arsenal. Mm. Uh, and they had looked like they were maybe starting to sort things out a little bit. Haven't lost too many games of late. Got that late win against against Palace with the, the Rafinha penalty at the end and then snatching that draw against against Brentford. But yeah, they're going to be up against it uh, for the next next couple of weeks at least. Meantime, off-field, I don't know if you saw the uh, piece in The Athletic talking about the 49ers slowly moving in on Ellen Road. They've had a stake in Leeds since 2018, gradually increasing it bit by bit. At the start of the year, they took it up to 37%, and then in November to 44 and this report that they're looking to own 100% of Leeds United and Ellen Road by January 2024. The club have rubbished these stories. I'm a bit bored. Why are the 49ers buying a Yorkshire football club? Well, it's similar to a lot. It's similar to Liverpool, you know, American sports organisations. All right, that's moving and moving into the Premier League because it's the it's the global branded league, I guess. But mm. um, just on a quick thing on Chelsea and Lukaku, and I know it's a small sample size, and I know it's not as simple as this, but with Lukaku in the team in the Premier League this season, Chelsea are averaging 1.8 goals a game. And without him, they're averaging 3.4. And I think, as our friend Daniel Story said at the start of the season, that integrating Lukaku into a team in the way that, that Conte did at Inter is not for everyone. And it made me think, maybe a swap deal in January, Spurs get Lukaku and Chelsea get Kane. And I think that might work out better for both teams. But it's not going to happen, is it? But it would be interesting. Good to put it out there, though, Duncan. Mm. Who knows? Is he a victim of the Haller paradigm? Big man misinterpreted because of his size? Possibly. I mean, he played really well. What was the, the Arsenal game at the start of the season? He played really well in that game. It looked almost unplayable. But it's almost like they, they saw that and then 
a lot of time since have been yeah sort of hitting it long to to him and sort of trying to feed off scraps, which isn't really his game. It's a bit like it's a bit like City. You look at the fact that City don't have a centre forward, and there have been a few games this season where you've thought, oh god, if, if City only had a number nine, the amount of chances they create, you know, they'd have won this game you know, much more comfortably. But I think that the problem with that is, is if you put a number nine into that City team, they're no longer able to play with the same sort of fluidity as they have been uh, of late, and well, since. Sort of halfway through last season, really, when when Guardiola stumbled on this strikerless formula, and I wonder whether Chelsea are in a similar position in that when you've got Havertz and Mount uh, and, and Ziyech and all the rest of them all kind of like spinning around each other, it's very difficult to defend against, and it makes them very unpredictable and very effective. And if you then plonk a target man centre forward into that, even one who's capable of scoring twenty five, thirty goals a season, you you don't just add what he brings to the the sort of the pile that was already there you actually take a little bit away before he before he comes into the team is it just though that he's been injured and they haven't really had a chance to kind of feel each other out and get in sync together it's probably a lot of that too yeah i'm i'm sure once he has found his feet he'll he'll be banging the goals in but it's mm. it's they said the same thing about that other fella didn't they well yeah that is true that is true i don't think it is this situation yet, yeah, but Chelsea do have an incredibly odd record with big name strikers from Shevchenko to Fernando Torres. You know, it, Chris it, Sutton, the, big Chris Sutton. Yeah, I mean, it is it is um, it is strange given you know their success over the last twenty years that they've have so often been able to integrate you know expensive strikers into their team. Right. Falcao. I mean, the list goes on. Anyway, uh, there you go. That's happening three o'clock. Chelsea leads Saturday. Loads of other things on the way as well. And in a second or two, we'll get on to a match that took place on Monday, Everton-Arsenal. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which will give some cheer to all you Hammers fans when David Moyes signs Maran Fellaini to help with West Ham's latest injury crisis. Free match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs and maximum free bet is £10. Other T's and C's apply and please gamble responsibly. Get your COVID passports at the ready because The Totally Football Show Live is coming on Tuesday the 1st of February. Circumstances permitting. Uh, Duncan Alexander and Michael Cox will be on stage. Duncan, looking up towards some digital destiny in the future. I'm just describing what I see here because we're on a Zoom call. Why would I put it above my head? I don't know, but you always look up, whereas Michael tends to opt more for the leaning back in chair, arms folded. We've uh, all got stances. 
You can see this live if you go to <laughs> LeicesterSquareTheatre.com and buy up one of the few. I mean, it's a handful. I'm not kidding. It's a, a handful of tickets that's still available. That's the 1st of February. Good. Last Monday night, big game at Goodison Park. It was all set for protests from the Everton fans. Instead, Rafa Benitez's side were winning over the crowd and winning against Arsenal with a come from behind Late, late 2-1 victory. All right, it's Arsenal. But after eight games without a win, you take it where you can, no? Yeah, I think it was quite a big uh, quite a big win for Everton, really, considering the talk going into it. I mean, if mm. you look at... If you watch Benitez's pre-game interview, all the questions were about the planned walkout from the fans. And it feels like the mood has been almost the lowest it's been for, for several years at Everton, which really is saying something. But, I mean, to get that kind of... Victory. I think particularly the way it was done, they had two disallowed goals. It felt like everything was conspiring against them. And then two, I mean, the, the winner was absolutely fantastic. And even actually the equaliser through Richarlison was, I thought, a, a really clever header. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it felt like a really big win for Everton. And, and a, for Arsenal, quite a damaging defeat. I mean, Arsenal have not been convincing in the last couple of weeks. And... They shouldn't have lost that game, really. They, they, they had, their, had themselves ahead against a side in really low confidence. And they, as they have tended to do this season, Arsenal, having gone ahead, they've really sat back and invited pressure without really offering anything on the counter-attack, I think. Mm. For Everton, amongst the circumstances conspiring against them was the fact that Yeri Mina had just come back from injury, went out immediately again with another uh, issue with his hamstring. No Luca Dean in the Everton squad at all. Rafa Benitez is uh, unwilling to explain why, but there's been some stories that he was, that Dean and Rafa haven't exactly been seeing eye to eye. And uh, Demari Gray with the with that 92nd minute goal to take all three points. The only player that Benitez spent money on in the summer, and even that was only 1.7 million. Do you think, Michael, that Rafa deserves a bit more credit given the circumstances of player acquisitions, etc., that he's been labouring under, or, or do you think it's been a massive disappointment his time so far there? Um, he integrated Townsend and Gray well. I think you can give him credit for that. I'm not sure he deserves any more credit than he's getting. And without wanting to be too harsh, I thought the nature of the win over Arsenal and the way that Richarlison led the line really asked questions of why they went two up front against Liverpool with Solomon Rondon up there, who just is offering absolutely nothing at the moment and was never going to offer much against the team who probably played the highest defensive line in the the Premier League. I just thought that was a weird selection to go 4-4-2 in what will probably be Everton's biggest fixture of the season, home derby against Liverpool. So there's been a few selection decisions that I think have been slightly odd. I'm not really sure what he sees in Rondon. I know they've worked together at three clubs now and have a very close relationship and it wasn't a bad plan B to bring in when you have injuries to your strikers but I think he started seven or eight games now and, and hasn't scored. And, um, yeah, when you see Richarlison playing as number nine like that, why would you bother? Mm. Well, can Everton now build on this win over the Gunners? Next up, Sunday at 4.30, they will be at Crystal Palace, taking on an Eagles side that's now lost three games in a row. As for Arsenal, they, Saturday 3 o'clock, will be hosting Southampton. Uh, it's tough, isn't it? They, they had us fooled, Arteta's Arsenal, with those four straight wins, admittedly against the old Aston Villa, Leeds, Leicester and, and Watford. But it looks like we're going to have to change the course of HMS narrative now because <laughs> process is not not working. Stuck in the Suez Canal. Yeah. <laughs> three, three away defeats in a row. Liverpool, Man United, Everton. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I mean, this is essentially what a mid-table team does, right? They have a, a, a spell of a few wins and a few defeats. And I think to the outside world, Arsenal are a mid-table Premier League team. So I think to a lot of Arsenal fans, and justifiably so, they're still one of the biggest teams in the country. So I think mm. that's why you get a slight juxtaposition between the reaction of Arsenal fans to Arteta and these really kind of underwhelming performances compared to the outside world, I think. Because I think that's the difference with, say, Manchester United under Solskjaer, as you looked at the squad and you're like, that squad should be doing a lot better. I don't necessarily think that is the case with Arsenal at the moment. I think the tricky thing as well with Arteta is that when he first took over, he seemed to have very clear ideas about how he wanted Arsenal to play. You know, he he seemed to get those ideas across quite quickly. Obviously won the FA Cup at the end of his first season. Uh, picked up a lot of big sculpts as well. Big sculpts? Mm-hmm. I think I've never said that word before in my entire life. Well, of all the people who should that? know that term, Sculpt. Tom. <laughs> scalps, <laughs> surely. Scalps. scalps. Well, then I, I said scalps, didn't I? You said scalps. Why did I say scalps? Scalps. But, but anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, picked, picked up a, a lot of big scalps as well. And you thought, OK, well, you know, this is the sort of football Arteta wants to play, playing it out from the back. And the, there was that sort of trademark Arsenal goal that they kept scoring, where they play it out from the back and work it down the right and then switch it to the left and mm. score. And it, it, it felt like he was a man with a plan. But then here we are, what, two years on from his appointment. And mm. you don't get the same sense that Arsenal know what they're doing. I mean, there's still, some of the principles are still there, still intact. They are still playing it out from the back. Aaron Ramsdale is obviously key to that. But I think particularly in the final third, they look quite muddled. Um, And, you know, the fact that Aubameyang was left on the bench against Everton and then didn't even come on when Lacazette came off and they put on Eddie Nketiah uh, first and then he missed... Uh, a, a very presentable chance. The fact we've not seen Nicola Pepe at all, you know, as much as he has been up and down in his Arsenal career today, you know, we've he's barely featured at all of late. And it just, I, it, you kind of feel like he's casting around for something. Uh, and I think that's that's possibly that's possibly something that's you know that that's that's become apparent in recent weeks. The idea that you know that plan that we thought was quite clearly defined and had been quite successfully introduced isn't quite as well set out as as we perhaps thought it was. Mm, hasn't survived the, the uh, impact with reality. Uh, uh, Junior Wijnaldum, uh, there's some talk that PSG might be heading back to the Premier League on loan, that he he wants to clear out a PSG and, and Arsenal potentially an option. Another uh, brighter bit of news for Gunners fans is that the team they're facing, Saints, haven't won a league game at Arsenal since November 1987. Was that the game where Paul Davis elbowed Glenn Cockrell? Might have been. I don't know. China and his cheekbones. Duncan referencing the fact that number one on that day in 1987 was to power's chance China in your hands. To push too far. Emergency keeper Willy Caballero will be in goal for Saints. Oh, I should mention in Arsenal's uh, defence that while they are struggling on the road, no Premier League team has taken more points per game at home this season. So there. Uh, what else this weekend? Friday night, Brentford-Watford kicks off round 16. Excitingly, this is the entomology derby. Bees against hornets. It's an all-inset affair. Will it be an anti-climax, you're wondering, listener? <laughs> I don't know. Possibly. Uh, Watford's games don't tend to be, though. You get loads of goals with Claudio Ranieri. It's a slightly similar to a fixture from the Women's FA Cup this year, which was London Bees against Crawley Wasps. 
And Ooh. I always, fu- I always find the name Crawley, Crawley Wasps. Wasps. Funny, it just makes me think they've been shed of their. <laughs> the maybe they're in jam. Animal. Maybe they're in jam. You know. Yeah, maybe. Speaking of the bees, does, does, that, does anyone know the story behind how Brentford got their nickname? Because it's really boring. Um, oh. I had to look it up because I, w- I was I was doing my um, sounds like the perfect story to bring into the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I was I was caught out live on air on this this uh-huh. TV show that I do in France because the presenter wanted to know what the story was and I I just didn't know. Um, he wondered whether British bees were red and white uh, rather than uh, yellow and black. Um, and I was like, oh, no, I don't know. So I looked it up. And it was because people used to shout, come on the bees, because bees was just an abbreviation of Brentford. The bees that makes sense. Brentford. And, then right. they, and they were like, oh, well, that, that works. Should we just make it bees? Just one of those things. like buzzing bees. Yeah. And I, I, just, I just found that a bit underwhelming. I'm sorry about that. In case... The uh, same French presenter asks you about the Hornets, Tom. Are you across the origin there? Secret origin story of... Uh... Um, the club was actually founded by a secret cabal of, of Hornets. Oh, all right, um, so you know who, that one. Who yeah. dressed up as humans um, yeah. and, and fooled the world. Well, yeah. the, weird, the weird thing about bees is that both Brentford and Barnet are bees. It just feels weird that there's two f- fairly major London clubs with the same, same nickname. Mm. Don't like that. They should have. They should have a playoff for the right to use it. Well, they played right. each other in the, in the FA Cup um, three years ago, and uh, Brentford won on a replay. And I agree, Barnet should have to get a new nickname after that. Uh, Hornets, by the way, were actually um, chosen as the nickname uh, after they did a poll among supporters uh, whether they wanted to be called because, of course, the 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 crest has got uh, some antlered. Animal, is it a it's a stag? moose, isn't it? Is it yeah. a moose? A moose. Right. Okay, yeah, it's a but moose, uh, no sign of any insects on that. The moose, man, that would be better. There you go. Anyway, um, but that's the game that's happening, and Watford for them. You can't it's a ask big the match. fans to pick the nickname, can you? They're obviously going to pick something cool. I think it just seems like it's cheating. You should be saddled with the nickname you had, you know, from. The... Nickname should be what that town is known for. Anyway, Watford. Industry. I think the I think Sunderland. That was a vote. The Black Cats. That was a relatively yeah. modern. Because when they it? moved to the stadium of light, they couldn't be the Mackham. Uh, they couldn't be the Rokerite cinema. Yeah. yeah so. Right. So I'm why Black Cats? Because that was their nickname back in the I think nineteenth century or early twentieth, and, okay. and it basically fell out of use. So they they brought it back. And also, also because Black Cats are bad luck, and they ha- they must have had some kind of inkling of the fortune that awaited them at the Stadium of Light. Are they Black Cats for people Perhaps. who cross their paths, though? So maybe. I tell I you, know. who needs a new nickname? Mm. Gillingham. They're just mm. the Jills. What yeah, do, that's rubbish. It doesn't mean anything. It's not. It sounds like it should be an animal, but it's not, is it? It's, it doesn't mean anything. They need a proper nickname. Yeah, if they worked, if if Gillingham was known for having a big fish processing fl- plant, fair play. Yeah. Yeah, that would be isn't. the Gills of Gillingham, that a different that team is. in a different town. That is fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, Watford are only three points off the drop, so this is a very big game for them against a Brentford side that's not exactly been firing on all cylinders of late, although they do look like they're about to take three points away at Leeds. Loads of goals in Watford's game so far under Claudio Ranieri, an average of four per match. Crikey. Three teams below Watford are all level on ten points. And they will be facing the following opponents. Norwich against Man United at Carrow Road. Newcastle will make the trip to the King Power to face Leicester. And Burnley host West Ham. Which one of those three games excites you the most? Norwich, Man United? Not for me. Really, Michael? 
two managers, two new managers facing off. Ralph Randick's Red Revolution against Dean Smith's. Well, how would you define what's happening with him at Norwich? Pleasant, pleasant adaptation. Yeah. Right. No, I think I think Burnley West Ham might be all okay. Right. Just because I, I'm just intrigued by Burnley because every season comes around and I never think they'll go down because I just expect them to get just enough. And this mm. year really feels like it could be the year where having the same back four for like five years finally cost them. I know Corne has been a great addition, but the results haven't been good and losing to Newcastle, I feel like that could be quite a transformative result in terms of Newcastle's season. And of course, Newcastle would have been one of the teams you would previously expected to finish below Burnley. Now they're level on points. All right, so. Corne coming off in that. Uh, defeat to Newcastle with a thigh injury. Although he says the news is reassuring. See you soon across his Instagram uh, feed. West Ham, one would love to have the same back four for five years. Theirs keep getting injured. Kurt Zuma, the latest one, with a hamstring injury that will reportedly keep him out for up to three months. They've already had Ben Johnson go out last weekend. Angelo Bonner is out for the rest of the season. There is a chance Aaron Cresswell could be back. But uh, yes, it's a tough trip to Turf Moor where no visiting team likes to go, etc. Well, that is our usual stance. But actually, West Ham have never kept a clean sheet at Turf Moor. So for West Ham, Turf Moor yes. is officially a tough place to go. So. OK. I mean, to be fair, Burnley was a tough place to go last time out because the game got snowed off. So that is... Can't get any tougher than that. No. No. Can I get anything on a Norwich Man United? Norwich, a club with a history of being inspired by people named D. Smith... Can they derail Ralph Ragnick's red revolution? I mean, they've they've been looking they've been looking better since Dean Smith came in. I mean, I, they did lose three 0 at Spurs uh, and didn't really lay a glove on them. But prior to that, drew uh, home to Wolves, uh, drew away at Newcastle. Um, and I mean, you know, from a sort of neutral perspective, I think the most interesting thing here is 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 getting our next look at the Ralph Ragnick revolution and. Whether he's gonna, um, you know, stick with the same team that he that he sent out for that win over Palace, uh, and you know the the impact certainly in the first thirty minutes of that game of, of his his coaching on United's off the ball work was was pretty striking. So you you, you do sense that um, he's he's getting his ideas across well, um, and uh, also I think you know giving the very kind run of fixtures that United have got basically all the way through to. The start of March pretty much means that if if they are able to to take all his ideas on board and and put things into place on the pitch, you know we could see them gaining ground on the top three quite quickly. I found the um, the team selection midweek was quite interesting. I know the game didn't really mean much, but it was like Rannick just said, right, I'm going to give everyone a chance, but I don't really care about your natural position. I'm just going to bung you all on the pitch together, and I don't think there were any collective kind of conclusions to take from that, but. I mean, it's a really good day for, for Greenwood. I think looked really sharp. Um, others really struck. I mean, Matic was at centre-back and just made some disastrous errors. <laughs> Van der Beek was holding midfield. I think got caught out for uh, a couple of uh, moves for young boys. Wan-Bissaka, I thought, re- looked really uncomfortable with the, the new system. So it was. It almost felt like one of those England friendlies under like Sven-Goran Eriksson <laughs> where you just, you know, he'd make 11 changes and just... Gavin one, McCann, get yeah, on the pitch. one player would impress. Leicester are taking on Newcastle because the other game that's happening this weekend, Spurs were due to be at Brighton. Has that now officially been called off on account of Tottenham's coronavirus outbreak? 
It's imminent, I think. All right. By the time you hear this, probably, listener, eight players have tested positive so far, 13 at the club in total. Mm. I always wonder what Brian Robson thinks at times like this, because obviously, famously, <laughs> uh, Middlesbrough called off a game of wet Blackburn because uh, they were ill and got docked points, which sent them down. But the, well, they didn't let anyone know was the issue. Well, they did, but did just they? a little bit late, and they didn't mm. have enough players to uh, call it off. But it also, when you think Robson's such a Manchester United legend, um, and then Alex Ferguson said he wouldn't sell a virus to Real Madrid, it all, all kind of fits together in some way, I think. Wow, seeing the bigger picture as, as ever, Duncan. Uh, Spurs, meantime, have had some controversy over their Europa Conference League due to have been played on Thursday night. Spurs announced that wouldn't be going ahead. Wren somewhat upset about this because they said they checked before leaving for, for the UK uh, with Spurs and they said that the game was going ahead and when they touched down they got a notification that Spurs had reconsidered. So they're a bit upset about that. Michael might agree with me here, but I really, really enjoy league tables where there's massive disparities in games played. As You see it quite a lot in non-league football and obviously in the Premier League it's relatively rare, but I think this winter with all that's going on at the moment and the, mm. the new variant and stuff, I think we could see a lot of games postponed at, at various points. So we could be looking at a very odd table come sort of March. I find tables like that troubling. I like the neatness yeah, I, of everyone playing the same. Games. Why do you like it? I just, I just I don't know. I just enjoy sort of seeing a team that's kind of level with someone else, but they've played like seven games fewer. It just, just amuses me. That's what amuses me. Michael, back me just up wants here, to watch please. the world burn. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I do prefer the neatness, I must say. Yeah. But, I mean, it'd be interesting to see what happened with this. I mean, there's been some suggestion that Tottenham could just forfeit the game, mm. which will almost certainly mean them going out of the UEFA Conference League, which I don't think many people care about. I mean, they'll finish third in the group. Presumably there's some kind of UEFA <laughs> non-league pyramid they'll end up instead, but just keep on going until the they... Europa Beza Homes League. They're, they go to <laughs> yeah. the knockout round in February. But I mean, I, I don't think I don't think we need to be dismissive of the Commerce League. I think for some teams it works, but mm. no one at Tottenham really seems to care that much, do no. they? So you could just forfeit the game, and I'm not sure there'd be too many tears. Oh, OK. Also, probably don't need to be too dismissive of Tottenham's concerns about playing uh, fixtures when they're suffering an outbreak like that. Similar concerns elsewhere, not least Leicester. He said tying in the final match from the weekend nicely, who at the time of recording head down to Naples for a key Europa League clash with Napoli. Uh, minus seven players. Uh, Brendan Rodgers needing a, a result, either in Europe or at home. Only one victory in the last six Premier League games, they're facing Newcastle this weekend, who won there actually back in May last season, 4-2. That was part of Leicester's annual end-of-season collapse party, of course. All right, well, that's that's coming up Sunday at 2 o'clock. Uh, health and circumstances as ever permitting. And that'll wrap things up for the Premier League, at least for 48 hours, until a midweek round gets underway on Tuesday. Excellent. Uh, very shortly, Duncan's going to talk to us about the weather. First, let's get some odds from Paddy Power with Carl Monaghan and producer Charlie. Hello, listener. How are you doing? Big week this week. Big news, big stories. Hey, no doubt what the big story on Saturday is. It's Stevie G returning to Anfield with the villa. Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power is alongside me. Carl, does Gerard leave Liverpool with three points or maybe a clean sheet? 
Well, Charlie, it's an intriguing prospect, no doubt about it. Stephen Gerrard's Aston Villa in action against Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool at Anfield. Truth be told, Stevie G has made a pretty brilliant start to his tenure as Villa boss with three wins and one loss. And that loss was to a Bernardo Silva wonder goal against Pep City, so no shame there. But it was the manner of last weekend's victory that caught my eye, Charlie. Hunger, desire and that never-give-up attitude oozed from the Aston Villa players like honey from Winnie the Pooh's paws. In the end, we saw a more than decent Leicester side finish second best. In terms of the betting, Liverpool are 1-5 to to win the game. The draw is 11-2 and the Aston Villa win is 10-1. to That clean sheet you ask about is probably unlikely, Charlie, with Salah's ongoing superhuman goal-scoring form. They even have Origi now getting in on the action with the goals. Gerrard's men, meanwhile, managed a clean sheet in their opener against Brighton but have conceded in their last three. So if I have not managed to put you off the Villa clean sheet by now, listeners, very well. It's 11-1. to 1. This is one of those fixtures, though, Charlie, where Jared will feel deep, deep down that it's an audition for the job he craves the most. And he's right, too. He'll be hoping to leave the audience with a positive impression. At the uh, same time on Saturday, it's Arsenal against Southampton at the Emirates. One bad week and the process is up in smoke. Arteta needs a win. Will he get one, Carl? He does indeed need a win, Charlie, like you say. And as bad weeks go... That wasn't a great one. The Paddy Power traders, though, are expecting Arsenal to bounce back with the win. The Gunners fans, of course, were fuming after the losses against United and Everton. Charlie, there was plenty of social media grenades going off all week. And now we have a situation where anything but a win for Arsenal on Saturday against the Saints would spell trouble for Arteta. Football is fickle, Charlie, and it's a results business, as you know. So the pressure is on for a response from Arteta and his players. We priced this one up as follows. Arsenal, 8-13 to for the win. The draw is 14-5. to And the Southampton win is 9-2. to You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com. Or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Totally Football League show is out on Thursday. If you like, you can hear actually, oh, Millwall boss Gary Rowett's on uh, having a chat with them. And also out on Thursday, the offside rule. Now, what are the odds on the weather disrupting this weekend in the Premier League, Duncan? You were all over meteorological impact on football matches across the continent. This week, well, I enjoyed the wintry scenes uh, in Bergamo. Amazing, mm. Mm, it was nice. Again, very rare sighting of red uh, pitch markings in their vain attempt to get it played that night. Um, it's an option on on FIFA 22 where you can change your the colours of your lines on the pitch, and it's really annoying when people do you know have yellow and red markings. So, but yeah, I saw a few people tweet that. Oh, it must be very unusual for an Italian team to have a you know snow at a home game but I'm pretty sure Lombardy gets more snow than most of England on average it's by the mountains to start when you so, say when you say you're pretty sure how very sure yeah you but reckon no, you a, get more snow what not on the mountains where people go skiing but you mean like but the no I think you get are, more cold weather I would yeah. say let's shift a little bit to Turin I reckon Turin's colder in the winter overall than yeah than, quite uh, possibly yeah, quite possibly. And I, think I don't people think for... you get a huge amount of snow there from from memory. You get a lot of fog in Lombardy. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but it's this idea. Like I remember, you get Argentinian players in the Premier League, and people say, "Oh, they won't have played in conditions like these," forgetting mm. that it gets really cold in Argentina in the winter. I think people just need to be a bit more weather savvy. Right. 
Well, it's not the first um, time a final group game in Champions League has been postponed because of snow. Because a few years back, there was the Galatasaray-Juve game. Yeah, and that and was I in w- Istanbul. I was amazed to know that it would it could snow in Istanbul. I would have had that down as very, very rare. I believe it's pretty rare. Uh, but when it happens, boy, does it happen. And, and yes, that proved very costly for Juventus. After they, Essentially, Galatasaray dug the pitch up uh, in preparation for the next day's game. And they, yeah. they came out and played on a frozen ploughed field and, and, and crashed out of the Champions Champions League. Hmm. Interesting. It's the coldest game you've ever been to, Tom? Oh, I've been to a lot of very cold games. Um, I remember going to a League Cup quarterfinal between Hull City and Manchester United about five or six years ago. And I remember saying to myself, this is, this is as cold as you've ever been at a football match. And it, it, right. did, it did feel very cold. Right. All right, it's one of, the, one of the joys of reporting on football matches over the winter is the challenge of, of getting your, your clothing approach right. The number uh-huh. of layers, when do you thermal, when do you not thermal, how, how much thermal coverage do you need, right. uh, you know, layering options. You'd so, be surprised by how much football journalists going to matches talk about those sorts of things as well. For anyone who's got a trip who's going to be maybe out in the elements this weekend and would like to make use of these years of, of, of uh, press box experience, what, what are the key things? I'm going to throw in two things. One, two pairs of socks, that's essential. A, uh, a thin pair and then a well, thicker Well, if, you, if you've got a nice thick pair of thermal socks, you only need the one. Well, two. But, it's I mean, going to be sure. even warmer. Each, each to their own. Right. The other thing is a tip from our uh, our friend Ian McIntosh. You, you take your laptop with you, stick the you know the transformer, the chunky bit. Stick that down your shirt. That it's like a hot water bottle. Yeah, never tried that myself. Wow. Uh, I have to say, I mean, yeah. uh, thermal thermal long johns are the, the game changer for me. I think right, as long then. as your as long as your legs legs are nice and warm, and then you can put as many layers on top as you need. Okay. Um, yeah, those be my my top tips. Worth pointing out that um, Chelsea were away at Zenit uh, this week and the temperatures there were incredibly low, something like minus 20. And mm. it broke uh, the record for the lowest temperature in St. Petersburg since 1893, um, which I believe was three names ago in terms of St. Petersburg as a city. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. You know, at the, um, at, at the Bernabeu, they have heaters in the roof. Okay. I went to watch. I went to watch a Real Madrid Malaga game uh, a, f- a few years ago, and it was really cold. And you're all sitting there, sort of, you know, rubbing your hands and oh, isn't it? And then suddenly, just this feeling of warmth, and you look, you, you look up, and like, I don't know, twenty meters above your head, there are all these heaters going on, and it's the most sort of bourgeois Real Madrid thing ever. Is that why they're waving the white handkerchief? Because you're trying to get a bit of air. <laughs> like, I'm so hot. Yeah. I've accidentally. Got the manager sacked again on nightmare. <laughs> Excellent. But yeah, I've I've never been to another never been to another stadium where they have that in roof heaters. No. So um, listeners, let us know if you've you've come across any others. Previously, I don't this... think there are any listeners still with us actually. Just <laughs> you, Duncan, Michael, and myself. But uh, sorry, Michael. Uh, previously this season, I um I think I reported on the fact that. Potter's Bar against Kingstonian was abandoned because of a puddle obstructing ah, the linesman. Yes. Just to let everyone know that the rearranged game on Tuesday was postponed uh, in advance because of a waterlogged pitch. But I don't <laughs> know whether it was the pitch or the the touch lines where the linesman was the running. Giant but puddle. Yeah, we'll keep that... everyone updated. Okay, excellent. Well, sadly, that's where we'll have to wrap it up for today. 
other podcasts, as we mentioned, are available to tide you over until we return on Monday with our reaction to all of the Round 16 fun and games. Many, many thanks in the meantime to Duncan, Tom, Michael, producer Charlie, and you, listener. Have a great weekend. We'll catch up with you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.